Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Williams. Join me as we explore the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and discuss a wide range of military history topics from the American Civil War to the Korean War. The following is an interview between MacArthur Memorial Archivist Jim Zobel and retired Major General Patrick Scully about Roy Bodine, an American dental officer who survived the fall of the Philippines in 1942, and then the hellish POW experience that followed. Dr. Roy L. Bodine's World War II Prisoner of War Diary, No Place for Kindness, is one of the most famous prisoner of war accounts of the voyages of the Japanese hell ships Orioko Maru and Nora Maru and Brazil Maru to Japan in December 1944 to January 1945. Bodine was captured on Bataan, Philippines in 1942, and he was one of 450 survivors of the 1,619 POWs that made that ill-fated voyage to Japan in the winter of 1944-1945. Bodine's memoir, however, was limited to the scope of his experiences on the hell ships. In an attempt to fill in the gaps of Bodine's life story, today we are talking with Major General Patrick Scully, former Deputy Surgeon General and Chief of the Army Dental Corps, U.S. Army. General Scully knew Dr. Bodine and has spent many years studying his life and times. General Scully, thanks for joining us today. Could you tell us how you met Mr. Bodine and became interested in researching his life? Well, I had read his diary soon after it was first published in 1983, and I had many mentors, uh, chiefs of the Dental Corps, who knew Roy and told me of him. And I was very fascinated with this story, this saga of the hell ships, and I wanted to meet him. And I went to visit him in, uh, on Memorial Day in 2001. We wanted to present him with a Dental Corps medallion, and we went to the retirement community he was living in in San Antonio, Texas, and we presented him the Del Corps medallion, and I had a chance to talk to him about his diary and his exploits and his professional uh, career after his experience in World War II. And so this led you to doing research about his life uh, later uh, later on. Yes. Can you tell us about his early life? Uh, it's our understanding that, uh, in a way, he kind of grew up in the Philippines? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, Roy Elbodine Jr., was born in Indianapolis, Indiana. His father, Roy Sr., was also a dentist, as was Roy Jr.'s grandfather. Roy's early years in Indianapolis were fairly unremarkable, but in 1917, his father joined the Army Dental Corps during World War I and stayed on as a regular Army Dental officer. So Roy Jr. became the, uh, the nomad, nomadic existence of a military child. And he had six different homes between the age of six and college, including a two-year stint in the Philippines from 1923 to 1925. And where was his dad posted at that time when, when he was a young man? His dad was posted at the Sternberg General Hospital in Manila. Okay. Okay. And when Bodine goes goes back to the Philippines, he'll be is he, is he at Sternberg as well? Yes, he is. And like his father, he specialized in prosthetic dentistry. He developed a love for it from his father, who was the head prosthodontist at the Army Dental School in Washington, D.C. And later on, after the stint in the Philippines for Roy Sr., his father established the uh, School of Dental Technology at the Army Dental School to train enlisted members in the laboratory phases of making dentures. So the love of prosthodontics 
uh, was deep in the Bodine family. And so when Roy was assigned to Sternberg Hospital uh, in the dental clinic there, he was engaged in prosthodontics as well. Did he request duty in the Philippines because he had lived there? I mean, did he like gain an affinity for the Philippines, do you think? Yes, uh, he had a wonderful youth there, I believe. He was very active in the scouts. And while he was a Boy Scout there, uh, he got merit badges and all the things that were available to him, such as fitness and swimming and life-saving, first aid, public health, canoeing, camping, and marksmanship. He had a wonderful there, time there as a youth and carried on with those things when he came back uh, to the uh, States after his father's assignment there. So I think uh, when he went back there, he'd requested that assignment was one of the places available to him. And I think he was just retracing his father's steps in that regard. And so when does he arrive before World War II? Is he there for a few years before the war? No, he did not arrive until 1939. Okay. So, yeah. uh, So he and his family, uh, his wife, Monica, and their two young daughters arrived in the Philippines in 1939. They took the ship USS Grant, which... uh, serviced the garrison in the Philippine Islands. He took the ship there, and when they got there, they lived in the same American compound that he had lived in as a, a youth with his father. Wow, wow. And so the family, do they get they get sent home right before the war, May of 1941? Yes, in the, in the autumn of 1941, Okay, uh, they are sent home just before uh, the war. Uh, when the war comes with the bombing of Pearl Harbor and then Clark Field on December 8th, uh, where do we find Dr. Bodine and what's his experience right after? Right. Well, because of the time change, you're right. It was December 8th. It was probably uh, about 1 a.m. in the morning when it happened at Pearl Harbor, but at Philippines time. So he was probably in bed, probably woke up early. Probably there was commotion in the streets, may have been on the radio. He may have been notified uh, by the hospital, but he went directly to the hospital and found out that uh, the officers were going to move in the hospital, they would live in the hospital, uh, and that they would go on 24-hour duty status, and that the hospital uh, would have a blackout at night. And in those first few uh, days after the uh, the beginning of the, the war in the Pacific, uh, Roy and his colleagues at the hospital were focused on establishing the hospital center in Manila. The Sternberg was going to be fleshed out with facilities at other barracks and uh, colleges, Santo Tomas University, and even a highlight court. So they had to move supplies around to get things set up. And that went on until the 24th of December when plans changed. It was very clear without air cover for the U.S. forces in the Philippines and Japanese controlling the sea lines communication that defending Manila and defending the against the Japanese on the beaches was not feasible, and that the American forces had to move to uh, the Bataan Peninsula to set up lines of resistance. So now all those supplies that were being moved around in Manila had to get over to Bataan. And Roy, as a supply, uh, was working as a supply officer, helping to move supplies over to Bataan. They set up two hospitals, one about the middle of the uh, peninsula on the east coast, uh, just southwest of LeMay, and another one further south, uh, just west of Cap Cabin, not far from Maravellas, on the southern end of the peninsula. The northern one hospital was called Hospital 1. The southern one was called Hospital Number 2. And Roy was supposed to be working in the prosthetic section of the dental clinic there at Hospital Number 2. But as we know, things didn't go that way. 
So he does. He's he's setting up both of those hospitals now. Is he is he working all over Bataan, or does he stay with the hospitals during the campaign? No, things change. Uh, what happens is that uh, he's assigned to the 101st Med- uh, Medical Collecting Company that supports a very unique organization called the Provisional Air Corps Regiment, which was all those pilots and air crews and the ground support who are no longer needed because their airfields were destroyed, their planes are gone, the big bombers were taken uh, down to Australia. So these airmen had to be trained as combat infantrymen. And Roy's collecting company was there to support them to evacuate wounded uh, when the fighting began. And so early January, the, this provisional Air Corps regiment was assigned behind the Abake-Mauban line of resistance, the first line of resistance, more towards the north of the Bataan Peninsula. And they were assigned in a position such that they could still get training from the 34th Infantry Regiment. Regular Army NCOs were training these airmen to be infantry, sort of like changing the the wheels on a plane while it was flying. And uh, after uh, the real fighting began and that first line of resistance was not tenable, they moved back to the Orion Bagak uh, line with that extended from east to west. Roy was put on the left flank of the second corps on the east side of the Patan Peninsula. The first corps was on the west side of the Patan Peninsula. So he did support the second corps, but it was through the collecting company's efforts in support of this regiment. Now his duties were very dangerous and very arduous. It was to collect the wounded at the front lines of combat and move them to the rear, to the clearing companies who then had vehicles and would move the wounded back to battalion A stations or to the hospitals in the rear. Now, when April 9 comes and the surrender of Bataan, does he make the death march to uh, Camp O'Donnell? Yes, he does. He was engaged in that death march. First of all, they were sort of the, the prisoners uh, were concentrated near Belanga, and then they make the march up to San Fernando, Pampanga. It was about a, a, a three to five day march, uh, the whole march for all the serials of POWs went for about 10 days from the 10th of April up to the 20th of April. But they marched to San Fernando, Pomahanga, and they were placed on trains and the trains took them to Capas and then they got off the trains to Capas and then marched again to Camp Odom. Yes. And that's where he begins his is really the nightmare of being a prisoner of war. Uh, does he have experience at any of the other camps or work details while well, after he's captured? Yes. He didn't stay long at uh, Camp O'Donnell. The Japanese realized uh, with the prisoners uh, dying up to 50 a day there that they weren't going to have many laborers for their slave labor and for their details. And so they determined that they would close the uh, POW uh, camp at Camp O'Donnell. So Roy was moved from Camp O'Donnell to Cabana Tuan in June of 1942. Um, some of the uh, troop uh, POWs who went to Cabana Tuan were moved further to other details around all over the islands. They they worked on bridges and roads and, and airfields. And some of uh, the lucky ones got to work on farms because they were all starving. And if you're working on a farm, you get, might get a chance to get a little bit of of food. Sure. Uh, there was a garden at Cabana Tuan, and, and Roy worked uh, some days in the uh, garden at Cabana Tuan. A thousand of the men went to Dubao and uh, Mindanao, and uh, these uh, 
POWs down there uh, were working on a big farm down there. It even had some poultry. And it was from Davao that uh, some American prisoners uh, escaped with two Filipino prisoners from the old penal colony and got the first word out about the uh, death march. As a prisoner, did did he ever serve as a dentist? Was he ever doing dental work uh, as a prisoner? Yes. Uh, throughout his time at uh, Cabana Tuan, he had his dental instruments with him. He put them in his musette bag, and he carried them with him uh, through the death march, through wow. O'Donnell and Cabana Tuan, all the way until he was getting off the Arukia Maru. He didn't take them overboard when they abandoned ship. Up till mm. then, he had his dental instruments, and he provided emergency dental care. It was extractions uh, for uh, people who were in pain from uh, infected tooth, uh, or doing scalings, or you know, helping with a, an oral infection or to help stop oral bleeding. So he did do some dental work uh, up until he uh, no longer had his dental instruments. But again, at the very end of the war, when he was in Korea, uh, they had a small dispensary there and he worked with Japanese dental instruments and again provided emergency care. So the whole time before he leaves in December of 44, he's at Cabanatuan. Correct. Now, in October of 1944, this is when the draft comes that Bodine's name is on. And this is when the Japanese are moving all the prisoners now to Japan. And Bodine goes from Kabanatuan to Bilibid Prison. Uh, that's where he'll be uh, up until the time of the loading. Do you know much about that time for, for Bodine? Uh, yeah, um, he took... They took the prisoners to Billy Bid Prison, which was in downtown Manila. They took them by trucks to Billy Bid on the 19th of October. There were 1,800 uh, POWs. And if you look down on a photo of Billy Bid Prison, the buildings almost look like radials on a clock. Right. And uh, Roy was put in one of those buildings, and there were 800 in a single building. Roy was in a single section with a bunch of medical officers, about uh, 13 of them in a section that was 13 by 13 feet. Uh, he had to sleep on the floor, and unfortunately, uh, they didn't give them bars so that they could erect mosquito nets, and so they were exposed to mosquitoes while he was there. And uh, Roy caught dengue fever from a mosquito bite while he was mm. in Billy Bit. While he was there, uh, the Japanese fed him twice a day with a runny gruel of rice called lugao. And uh, each morning, the men would have uh, a regular routine of what they call tinko and bongo, which was uh, roll call and count off. And after they had this tinko or bongo, the prisoners really had some time to, to themselves. Uh, the Catholic prisoners, like Roy, went to mass every day. And uh, Roy got to be very good friends with uh, uh, not only the medics that he knew from his time at Sternberg, but also the uh, Catholic chaplains who were there with him at Billy Bid. And while they're mm -hmm. at the Mass, uh, they prayed that MacArthur would hurry up and return before the Japanese could uh, move them. And uh, they also praised whenever they heard uh, bombs hitting the pier or the uh, airfield, the Nichols airfield, because each of those bombs uh, maybe was one more step from them not being moved uh, to Japan and out of the Philippines. Now, on uh, December 13th, um, Bodine, with the 16, 1,619 other prisoners, load onto the Orioko Maru, a Japanese liner, in which he'll be taken to Japan. Uh, two days later, the Orioko Maru is sunk right outside of, of um, Manila Bay. Can you tell us about Bodine's experiences in those few days until the bombing? As you said, on the December 13th, after Tinko and Bongo, uh, the men uh, were arranged and they marched out of uh, the Billy Bid prison, 1,619 of them. 
It turned down General Luna Street, marched past the American compound where Roy had lived as a child and where his family had lived himself while he was there assigned to Stuttgart Hospital. And they went down to the pier. When they got to the pier, there were three ships there, but the largest, the most beautiful was a rather new ship, which was called the Eritreo Maru. It was a large uh, passenger ship with freight capacity. When they arrived at the pier, the Japanese were putting Japanese families onto the first level of decks on the ship. The POWs were moved on the ship late in the afternoon of the 13th of December, and they were put into three holes. The forward hold held 600 POWs. The aft hold held 800. And Roy was very, very fortunate. He was put in the middle hole where there was just a little bit better than 200 uh, POWs. The uh, aft and the forward holes, as he would learn later after the, the sinking of Ricky Maru and the people, had, the prisoners had abandoned ship and he was on shore with the people in these other holes, holes he would find what a horror show they truly were, just a scene from hell. The uh, prisoners were pushed down into the hole, beat with brooms to get them to the darkest recesses of this hold, and there was very, very little air to begin with. And the prisoners were painting, were fainting, but, and the same thing went on in the forward hole as well. And at night, about 10 o'clock, Mr. Wada, who was the interpreter, came over, put his head in the hole, and told the men who were screaming out and crying and yelling, tell them, you're disturbing the Japanese up above. If you don't quiet down, we're going to shut down the hatches. Well, they didn't quiet down. He shut the hatches down, and now there was no air. And uh, the men down there were suffocating. They didn't have any uh, uh, air, and uh, they also didn't have any water. They were all dehydrated. Uh, they had gotten a little bit of food earlier with buckets of food passed down to them in the holds. But at the same time, the Japanese, they put the excrement buckets down the hold. Those got interchanged in the dark. Uh, men went mad in that setting. And during the night, uh, some of the men who were able to hijack knives on their person used those jackknives, killed some of their fellow POWs, and even sucked the blood from them to try to get some moisture in their parched throats. Uh, it was a terrible, yeah. terrible thing. Yes. On the, uh, the morning of the 14th, uh, after this terrible night of hell, uh, the ship is strafed at first light by American planes, and uh, some of the uh, POWs are wounded, but the ship still is off and running along the coast of the Philippines. But then finally, at dusk, has to put in has to put in the bay off Olongapo. And uh, while they're in this bay about just after midnight in the morning of the 15th of December, Roy in his hold, the middle hold, which was much better than the other two, he had air and he had a little bit of food and he had a little bit of light. He could hear that the Japanese prison, excuse me, Japanese families were being put off the ship. And about four o'clock in the morning, Mr. Wada, under the orders of Lieutenant Chishino, who was the prison, uh, commander of the prisoner ships, told the uh, POWs that they were going to disembark at uh, 4 a.m. Well, it didn't happen, as most things, for the prisoners until about first light. And at that time, at first light, while the uh, POWs, the first 25, were being put in boats to be taken to the shore, American planes come back over and strafe and bomb the ship. And at 8 a.m. in the morning, one of the Japanese guards puts his head into the hole and says, everybody go home speedo, which was the sign that everybody had to abandon ship. And so Roy got himself up to the rail, and uh, he was a little bit wobbly because he was uh, pretty emaciated, but got himself 
off the over the rail and into the water. And he found the water kind of refreshed him. And uh, he found a plank, grabbed that plank in the water. And then he saw uh, other planks in the water. He helped other POWs into the water. He started the shore, turned around, realized there were more people still having problems, went back and helped many other POWs get on planks, help them to shore by the tired swimmer carry and save many lives. And after the war, he was awarded the Bronze Star of V device for his heroism uh, at the sinking of the Rikumaru. Uh, once they got to shore, there was a seawall and uh, the water was very shallow in front of the seawall, sat for a few minutes in front of the seawall as all the POWs that had been the ship gathered there. And then finally, they went over on the uh, land side of the seawall and they gathered there. And in the afternoon, they were able to watch American planes come over and sink the Arikyo Maru. And that was the end of it. And it went out of sight, slid into the water. But the American planes, when they flew over, wobbled their wings. So the POWs knew that the American uh, forces recognized that these were American POWs on shore, and they believed that they would not attack them anymore because they recognized they were Americans. After the sinking, there's about 300 prisoners, I believe, that, that don't survive. And the Correct. rescue to the tennis courts at Alangapo, eventually they think that they might be going back to Bilibit Prison or to Cabantuan, but the Japanese are going to keep sending them on. Uh, and they will put them on the Anora Maru and the Brazil Maru up in the north. But there's about a week or so before getting on those ships. And that's a nightmare in itself, The on the tennis court and then at those places in San Fernando and then the train journey north. Um, can you just briefly tell us something about those? Sure. In, the af- in that afternoon after Nor- Riccio Maru sunk, the men were placed on a tennis court. The average uh, regular tennis court is uh, 78 by 27, and then there's a 13-foot perimeter all the way around the tennis court. So really, the all the room they had was 104 by 53. And remember, the men, most of the men were near naked uh, from going overboard, and that they also had used their uh, clothes to fan other people on the ship back when they were dying from the heat and suffocating. So they really didn't have any clothes. And so they were roasting during the day in the sun and freezing at night, laying on the hard uh, tennis court surface, but they had to interlock their legs to make room because there was not enough room for 1,300 men on this tennis court. So yeah, it was another hellacious experience. But uh, then the uh, Japanese were going to move them o- away from uh, the tennis courts, and they took them by trucks to San Fernando Pampanga, where they were placed on trains to go up to San Fernando Luyugan, which was up on Lingayen Gulf. And uh, these trains were also a hell journey. 180 to 200 men were put on a single train car. Uh, the Japanese had sealed one side of the train and they had one door open, which the prisoners could get onto the train. The people near the door were lucky because they got a little bit of air. Everybody else in the train was in stifling, in stifling heat. And again, they had to interlock their bodies to be able to sit down uh, to extend their legs at all. The uh, Japanese put 13 prisoners on top of each train car because they had seen the planes wobble their wings to the prisoners. So they knew uh, that that the the Americans would not attack that train if they saw the prisoners on top because that train was also moving ammunition. So the train ride went from Christmas Eve all the way till Christmas Day until they arrived at uh, San Fernando uh, La Union. On the 26th, 
they were moved to uh, the area where the pier was, and they were able to take a little dip in the water, uh, which was wonderful for the men to get cleaned up a little bit. And Roy recognizes this is another place that he had been. This this was a, a beach where he had swam with his family. But they were only stay there for a little while. They uh, spent the afternoon on the beach. Again, it was very hot. They were poorly clothed. And then a little bit of the evening, they were able to lay down, but it was very, very cold. And then uh, they were put on two ships in the pier. One was the Honora Maru, and about 1,000 men were placed on that ship, and 250 men were put on the Brazil Maru. Roy was put on the Brazil Maru. Now, they get to Formosa after about a six-day journey, and then on January 9th, the Honora Maru gets bombed, uh, and they lose again about another couple of hundred prisoners. And then they get put on the Brazil Maru, which is going to take them to Japan. Now, this is really the death ship that most of the men will die on. Can you tell us about that experience on the Brazil Maru? Yeah, the the Brazil Maru, all that was left was probably uh, 900 and so uh, men left. Uh, when this ship, they're all in a in a single hold. But the problem was, again, the men were very, very poorly clothed. They were emaciated. They were dehydrated. They hadn't been fed well. They were not very resistant to cold temperatures. And as that ship moved north, the colder and colder it got. And many men just succumbed from the sum total of all of the abuses their bodies had taken, disease, and diarrhea, and dysentery, and the cold. And they were losing 30 to 40 men a day all the way to Moichi, Japan. And so there's only about 450 that actually get off the ship, aren't there? That's correct. What happens to, to Roy after he gets into Japan? And where does he eventually get liberated? Well, first of all, he's in uh, Fukuoka from uh, uh, the end of January in 45 until April 26. Uh, he's uh, welcomed into that camp by the existing uh, prisoners there, uh, British and American prisoners who welcome the uh, new POWs like uh, returning royalty. They were treated very well. And while he was there at the camp, because they were getting uh, Red Cross packages alike and they were getting fed regularly there by the Japanese, I think the Japanese saw the end of the war might be coming. They took better care of the prisoners there and, and their colleagues from that were there previously also helped to make sure that the new prison, prisoners of war there uh, regained their strength. And he started to put on some weight and some and some muscle mass. On the 26th of April, uh, he was a ship from uh, Amoji over to uh, Busan, Korea, and then a train from there through Seoul to Jinsen, Korea, which is today Incheon. And he went into the prisoner of war camp there. He said it was the very best uh, camp uh, in which he had ever been in. There, uh, the food was better. Uh, they had a garden. He was able to work in the garden some there. But he also was able to practice dentistry with the Japanese dental instruments that were there in the dispensary, which he really enjoyed. Also, he uh, did some uh, work on buttons and making buttons for uh, buttonholes for, for shirts. Uh, so the prisoners were improving and gaining strength uh, from the time that he arrived there. And on the 16th of August, he hears that the war is over. And on the 17th, uh, Colonel Beecher, who was quite a hero through all this, makes his demands of his Japanese captors that they give him the Red Cross packages, the food, and the blankets, and that they be treated appropriately and given them medicines. Right. And uh, the Japanese give them all those things. And Roy writes, you know, all this stuff was there, but they were denied this at the time that they were prisoners, but it was there for them. Then in late August and for about the next week, uh, American forces would fly over and they would drop 
uh, food and other supplies to the, the POWs. And so they had to be there and mark the ground, make sure they weren't under the drops and be able to get there, get out and uh, capture the things that were coming down to them. Those eight months uh, from January to August of 1945, of those 450 that were on that Orioko Maru June, uh, journey, an- about another 100 die in those camps. That's correct. So Roy yeah, is really a survivor of a select few from, from that entire experience. That is correct. He, he comments that nearly 100 just finally succumbed there at Fukuoka. So from the 450, they're down to about 300 and some. And he is one of those lucky ones. And uh, when I think about it, um, I think about Roy's level of fitness going into this. I think it really played out for him. He was a very fit, but I also think it was uh, his uh, faith, his family and the friends, uh, the sharing of food with friends, the support they gave to one another uh, helped carry him uh, through this. Right. Right. And that's what it seems like most of those guys that, that you had to have friends in order to make it. And you, you had to have something that you were looking forward to 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 get back. Exactly. To. Can you tell us about Roy's post-war life? Because we, we really don't know much about that at all. Yeah. Well, Roy became a very, pro, a very famous uh, prosthodontist. And when he came back, uh, he, he was, uh, you know, he had convalesced up at Madigan Hospital, uh, but then asked to be assigned at Fort Sam Houston. He made a promise, uh, he made a promise to himself during the prison war camp that he was going to be at warm places in the future. And so he went to Fort Sam Houston and they gave him a job of uh, teaching the dental interns there. And he taught, taught them uh, prosthodontics and he was a natural teacher. And he got very much involved in research and writing on uh, the new dental implants, which were subperiosteal dental implants. And over his uh, professional career, he published many articles on subperiosteal implants and followed his patients not only through his time while he was an active duty dental officer, but kept in touch with them uh, after he retired from the Army. He became a board-certified prosthodontist with a subspecialty of implants. He was one of the leading um, men of the Academy of Implant Dentistry, was eventually recognized with their uh, highest award for service to uh, uh, the profession and to the, the academy. Just a wonderful job as a dental officer. But while he was doing all these clinical things and teaching, he was also advancing in his leadership responsibilities, became the uh, dental surgeon for the Fourth Army. Later on, he became the Pacific dental surgeon. So he was back in the Pacific. And in those duties, he went back to Japan. And in 1961, when he retired from the Army, he went and became a professor of prosthodontics at the University of Puerto Rico. He was there for 10 years. And then he went to the University of Southern California as a as a professor of prosthodontics. I think one there's one real neat anecdote I I think I'd like to share with you. They kind of um, really summarizes a lot of uh, of Roy's experience. Um, in 1961, his daughter Anne was a student at Stanford University, and she earned an exchange um, position in Tokyo, Japan, and she studied in Tokyo, Japan for a year. And Roy visited his daughter in Tokyo, and then the two of them took a train ride down to Fukuoka. And while he was down there, it was just a big open field. He was walking around this field uh, when a guard came out. And this old guard recognized Roy, and Roy recognized him. It was one of the guards from his time there as a POW. And as his daughter, Anne, writes, they noticed, recognized each other and greeted each other warmly. 
and then walked around that open field reminiscing to one another of things past. So the point was that uh, Roy never forgot what happened to him. He wrote it in his diary that ended up in the war crimes trial. It helped in the conviction of some of the people that were his worst tormentors. But even though he had never forgotten, he had learned to forgive. Any final thoughts on Roy Bodine? Well, I just think he was a very, very special man. He uh, just was always looking forward. When I uh, visited with him in 2001 on Memorial Day, and his family was there as we were presenting this medallion, we made it sort of a celebration of his family and his service and everything. As uh, we were getting done, Roy said to me, General, I want you to meet one more person. I said, Roy, I thought I met all your family. He said, uh, no, sir, I, I've, I've met a young lady here in the uh, retirement community, and uh, we're going to get married next Saturday. Remember, Roy's wife, Monica, had uh, died before Roy. Mm. Anyways, uh, at that, the door opened up, and this lovely silver-haired lady walked into the room, and Roy introduced me to uh, Regina. And indeed, uh, the following Saturday, they were married. Uh, a year later, at my retirement from the Army, he came over to the AMED Museum where we had the reception. It's at the AMED Museum where all of Roy's POW memorabilia are, and also the most important items we have in that museum are these diaries that Roy wrote that were used in the war crimes trials. Right. But anyways, I said a few words of thanks, and I looked out from the podium there right in front of me where Roy and Regina just beaming, and that's the way I'll always remember him. This optimistic man, always looking forward, always, always giving the best to his profession and to his country. Thank you, General Scully, um, for this brief look into the life of Roy Bodine and the experience of the American prisoners captured in the Philippines. Uh, I implore everyone to try and find a copy of Roy Bodine's Prisoner of War Diary. It really is uh, something special and something that every American should read. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jim. I really appreciate it. It was an honor to share this story about a great American. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments, we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at MacArthur1880, on Facebook as the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial, or you can email MacArthurMemorial at Norfolk.gov.